Section 7 of In the Fourth Year, Anticipations of a World Peace by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by John Sherman. Section 7, Chapter 5C, Getting the League Idea Clear in Relation to Imperialism. Some weeks later I was able, at the invitation of the editor, to carry the controversy against imperialism into the Daily Mail, which has hitherto counted as a strictly imperialist paper. The article that follows was published in the Daily Mail under the heading, Are We Sticking to the Point? A Discussion of War Aims. Has this War Aims controversy really got down to essentials? Is the purpose of this war conflict from first to last too complicated for brevity, or can we boil it down into a statement compact enough for a newspaper article? And if we can, why is there all this voluminous, uneasy, unquenchable disputation about war aims? As to the first question, I would say that the gist of the dispute between the Central Powers and the world can be written easily without undue cramping and an ordinary handwriting upon a postcard. It is the second question that needs answering, and the reason why the second question has to be asked and answered is this, that several of the Allies, and particularly we British, are not being perfectly plain and simple-minded in our answer to the first, that there is a division among us and in our minds, and that our division is making us ambiguous in our behavior, that it is weakening and dividing our action and strengthening and consolidating the enemy, and that unless we can drag this slurred-over division of aim and spirit into the light of day and settle it now, we are likely to remain double-minded to the end of the war, to split our strength while the war continues, and to come out of the settlement at the end with nothing nearly worth the strain and sacrifice it has cost us. And first, let us deal with that postcard and say what is the essential aim of the war, the aim to which all other aims are subsidiary. It is, as we have heard repeated again and again by every statesman of importance in every allied country, to defeat and destroy military imperialism, to make the world safe forever against any such deliberate aggression as Germany prepared for 40 years and brought to a climax when she crossed the Belgian frontier in 1914. We want to make anything of that kind on the part of Germany or of any power henceforth impossible in this world. That is our great aim. Whatever other objects may be sought in this war, no responsible statesman dare claim them as anything but subsidiary to that. One can say, in fact, this is our sole aim. Our other aims bring but parts of it. Better that millions should die now, we declare, than that hundreds of millions still unborn should go on living, generation after generation, under the black tyranny of this imperialist threat. There is our common agreement. So far, at any rate, we are united. The question I would put to the reader is this. 
are we all logically, sincerely and fully carrying out the plain implications of this war aim? Or are we to any extent muddling about with it in such a way as to confuse and disorganize our allies, weaken our internal will and strengthen the enemy? Now, the plain meaning of this supreme declared war aim is that we are asking Germany to alter her ways. We are asking Germany to become a different Germany. Either Germany has to be utterly smashed up and destroyed, or else Germany has to cease to be an aggressive military imperialism. The former alternative is dismissed by most responsible statesmen. They declare that they do not wish to destroy the German people or the German nationality or the civilized life of Germany. I will not enlarge here upon the tedium and difficulties such an undertaking would present. I will dismiss it as being not only impossible, but also as an insanely wicked project. The second alternative, therefore, remains as our war aim. I do not see how the sloppiest reasoner can evade that. As we do not want to kill Germany, we must want to change Germany. If we do not want to wipe Germany off the face of the earth, then we want Germany to become the prospective and trustworthy friend of her fellow nations. And if words have any meaning at all, that is saying that we are fighting to bring about a revolution in Germany. We want Germany to become a democratically controlled state such as is the United States today, with open methods and pacific intentions instead of remaining a clenched fist. If we can bring that about, we have achieved our war aim. If we cannot, then this struggle has been for us only such loss and failure as humanity has never known before. But do we as a nation stick closely to this clear and necessary, this only possible meaning of our declared war aim? That great clear-minded leader among the Allies, that Englishman who more than any other single man speaks for the whole English-speaking and Western-thinking community, President Wilson, has said definitely that this is his meaning. America, with him as her spokesman, is under no delusion. She is fighting consciously for a German resolution as the essential war aim. We in Europe do not seem to be so lucid. I think myself we have been and are still fatally and disastrously not lucid. It is high time and over that we cleared our minds and got down to the essentials of the war. We have muddled about in blood and dirt and secondary issues long enough. We in Britain are not clear-minded, I would point out, because we are double-minded. No good end is served by trying to ignore in the fancied interests of unity a division of spirit and intention that trips us up at every step. We are, we declare, fighting for a complete change in international methods, and we are bound to stick to the logical consequences of that. We have placed ourselves on the side of democratic revolution against autocratic monarchy, and we cannot afford to go on shilly-shallying with that choice. 
We cannot in these days of black or white play the part of lukewarm friends to freedom. I will not remind the reader here of the horrible vacillation and inconsistencies of policy in Greece that have prolonged the war and cost us wealth and lives beyond measure. But President Wilson himself has reminded us pungently enough and sufficiently enough of the follies and disingenuousness of our early treatment of the Russian Revolution. What I want to point out here is the supreme importance of a clear lead in this matter now in order that we should state our war aims effectively. In every war there must be two sets of war aims kept in mind. We ought to know what we mean to do in the event of victory so complete that we can dictate what terms we choose. And we ought to know what, in the event of a not altogether conclusive tussle, are the minimum terms that we should consider justified in a discontinuance of the tussle. Now, unless our leading statesmen are humbugs and unless we are prepared to quarrel with America in the interests of the monarchist institutions of Europe, we should, in the event of an overwhelming victory, destroy both the Hohenzollern and Habsburg imperialisms, and that means, if it means anything at all and is not mere lying rhetoric, that we should insist upon Germany becoming free and democratic, that is to say, in effect, if not in form, Republican, and upon a series of national republics, Polish, Hungarian, Serbo-Croatian, Bulgarian, and the like, in Eastern Europe grouped together, if possible, into congenial groups, crowned republics it might be in some cases, in the case of the Serb, for example, but in no case too much crowned, that we should join with this renaissance Germany and with these thus liberalized powers and with our allies and with the neutrals in one great league of free nations trading freely with one another, guaranteeing each other freedom and maintaining a worldwide peace and disarmament and a new reign of law for mankind. If that is not what we are out for, then I do not understand what we are out for. There is dishonesty and trickery and diplomacy and foolery in the struggle, and I am no longer wholehearted for such a half-hearted war. If after a complete victory we are to bolster up the Hohenzollerns, Habsburgs and their relations, set up a constellation of more cheating little subordinate kings and reinstate that system of diplomacies and secret treaties and secret understandings, that endless drama of international threatening and plotting, that never-ending arming that has led us after a hundred years of waste and muddle to the supreme tragedy of this war, then the world is not good enough for me and I shall be glad to close my eyes upon it. I am not alone in these sentiments. I believe that in writing thus I am writing the opinion of the great mass of reasonable British, French, Italian, Russian and American men. I believe too that this is the desire also of great numbers of Germans and that they would, if they could believe us, gladly set aside their present rulers to achieve this plain common good for mankind. But, the reader will say, what evidence is there of any Republican feeling in Germany? That is always the objection made to any reasonable discussion of the war.
and as most of us are denied access to German papers, it is difficult to produce quotations, and even when one does, there are plenty of fools to suggest and believe that the entire German press is an elaborate camouflage. Yet in the German press there is far more criticism of militant imperialism than those who have no access to it can imagine. There is far franker criticism of militarism in Germany than there is of reactionary Toryism in this country, and it is more free to speak its mind. That, however, is a question by the way. It is not the main thing that I have to say here. What I have to say here is that in Great Britain, I will not discuss the affairs of any of our allies, that there are groups and classes of people, not numerous, not representative, but placed in high and influential positions and capable of free and public utterance, who are secretly and bitterly hostile to this great war aim, which inspires all the allied peoples. These people are permitted to deny our particular censorship does not hamper them, loudly and publicly that we are fighting for democracy and world freedom. Tosh, they say to our dead in the trenches, you died for a mistake. They jeer at this idea of a League of Nations making an end to war, an idea that has inspired countless brave lads to face death and such pains and hardships as outdo even death itself. They perplex and irritate our allies by propounding schemes for some precious economic league of the British Empire, that is to treat all foreigners with a common base selfishness and stupid hatred, and they intrigue with the most reactionary forces in Russia. These British reactionaries openly and with perfect impunity represent our war as a thing as mean and shameful as Germany's attack on Belgium, and they do it because generosity and justice in the world is as terrible to them as dawn is to the creatures of the night. Our Tories blundered into this great war not seeing whither it would take them. In particular, it is manifest now by a hundred signs that they dread the fall of monarchy in Germany and Austria. Far rather would they make the most abject surrenders to the Kaiser than deal with a renaissance Republican Germany. The recent letter of Lord Lansdowne urging a peace with German imperialism was but a feeler from the pacifist side of this most un-English and unhappily most influential section of our public life. Lord Lansdowne's letter was the letter of a peer who fears revolution more than national dishonour. But it is the truculent wing of this same anti-democratic movement that is far more active. While our sons suffer and die for their comforts and conceit, these people scheme to prevent any communication between the Republican and Socialist classes in Germany and the Allied population. At any cost, this class of pampered and privileged traitors intend to have peace while the Kaiser is still on the throne. If not, they face a new world, in which their part will be small indeed, and with the utmost ingenuity they maintain a dangerous vagueness about the Allied peace terms with the sole object of preventing a revolutionary movement in Germany. 
Let me put it to the reader exactly why our failure to say plainly and exactly and conclusively what we mean to do about a score of points, and particularly about German economic life after the war, paralyzes the penitents and friends and helpers that we could now find in Germany. Let me ask the reader to suppose himself a German in Germany at the present time. Of course, if he was, he is sure that he would hate the Kaiser as the source of this atrocious war. He would be bitterly ashamed of the Belgian iniquity, of the submarine murders and a score of such stains upon his national honour. And he would want to alter his national system and make peace. Hundreds of thousands of Germans are in that mood now. But as most of us have had to learn, a man may be bitterly ashamed of this or that incident in his country's history. What Englishman, for instance, can be proud of Glencoe? He may disbelieve in half its institutions and still love his country far too much to suffer the thought of its destruction. I prefer to see my country's right. But if it comes to the pinch and my country's sins, I will fight to save her from the destruction her sins may have brought upon her. That is the natural way of a man. But suppose a German wished to try to start a revolutionary movement in Germany at the present time. Have we given him any reason at all for supposing that a Germany, liberated and democratized, but of course divided and weakened as she would be bound to be in the process, would get better terms from the Allies than a Germany still facing them, militant, imperialist and wicked? He would have no reason for believing anything of the sort. If we allies are honest, then if a revolution started in Germany today, we should, if anything, lower the price of peace to Germany. But these people who pretend to lead us will state nothing of the sort. For them, a revolution in Germany would be the signal for putting up the price of peace. At any risk, they are resolved that German revolution shall not happen. Your sane, good German, let me assert, is up against that, as hard as if he was a wicked one. And so, poor devil, he has to put his revolutionary ideas away. They are hopeless ideas for him because of the power of the British reactionary. They are hopeless because of the line we as a nation take in this matter, and he has to go on fighting for his masters. A plain statement of our war aims that did no more than set out honestly and convincingly the terms the Allies would make with a democratic Republican Germany, Republican I say because where a scrap of Hohenzollern is left today there will be a fresh militarism tomorrow, would absolutely revolutionize the internal psychology of Germany. We should no longer face a stolid people. We should have replaced the false issue of Germany and Britain fighting for the hegemony of Europe, the lie upon which the German government has always traded and in which our extreme Tory press has always supported the German government, by the true issue, which is freedom versus imperialism. The League of Nations versus that net of diplomatic roguery and of 
aristocratic, plutocratic and autocratic greed and conceit which dragged us all into this vast welter of bloodshed and loss. End of section 7